Section 25 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art, in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Huizinga, translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Section 25. Verbal and Plastic Expression Compared. Part 1. With each attempt to draw a sharp line of demarcation between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, this borderline has receded further and further backward. Ideas and forms, which one had been accustomed to regard as characteristic of the Renaissance, proved to have existed as early as the 13th century. Accordingly, the word Renaissance has been so much extended by some as to include even St. Francis of Assisi, but the term thus understood loses its genuine meaning. On the other hand, the Renaissance, when studied without preconceived ideas, is found to be full of elements which were characteristic of the medieval spirit in its full bloom. Thus it has become nearly impossible to keep up with the antithesis, and yet we cannot do without it, because Middle Ages and Renaissance by the usage of half a century, have become terms which call up before us, by means of a single word, the difference between two epochs, a difference which we feel to be essential, though hard to define, just as it is impossible to express the difference of taste between a strawberry and an apple. To avoid the inconvenience inherent in the unsettled nature of the two terms Middle Ages and Renaissance, the safest way is to reduce them, as much as possible, to the meaning they originally had. For instance, not to speak of Renaissance in reference to St. Francis of Assisi, or the Ogival style. Nor should the art of Klaus Sluter and the brothers Van Eyck be called Renaissance. Both in form and in idea, it is a product of the waning Middle Ages. If certain historians of art have discovered Renaissance elements in it, it is because they have confounded very wrongly realism and renaissance now this scrupulous realism this aspiration to render exactly all natural details is the characteristic feature of the spirit of the expiring middle ages it is the same tendency which we have encountered in all the fields of thought of the epoch a sign of decline and not of rejuvenation the triumph of the renaissance was to consist in replacing this meticulous realism by breadth and simplicity. The art and literature of the fifteenth century in France and in the Netherlands are almost exclusively concerned with giving a finished and ornate form to a system of ideas which had long since ceased to grow. They are the servants of an expiring mode of thought. Now the literature and the art of a period in which artistic creation is almost limited to mere paraphrasing of ideas, fully thought out, will differ widely from each other in their value for future ages. Let us consider roughly, for a moment, the impression left upon us, on the one hand, by the literature of the fifteenth century, and on the other hand, by its painting. Villon and Charles d'Orlaines apart, most of the poets will appear superficial, monotonous and tiresome, always allegories with insipid personages and hackneyed moralizing, always the same themes repeated to satiety, the sleeper in the orchard who, in a dream, sees a symbolic lady, 
the walk at daybreak in the month of may the debate on a love case in short an exasperating shallowness cloying romanticism vapid imagery we shall rarely glean a thought there which is worth being remembered or an expression which dwells in our memory the artists on the other hand are not only very great like van eyck Foucault, or the unknown who painted the man with the glass of wine but nearly all even the mediocre ones arrest our attention by each detail of their work and hold us by their originality and freshness yet their contemporaries admired the poets much more than the artists why was the flavor lost in the one case and preserved in the other the explanation is that words and images have a totally different ascetic function if the painter does nothing but render exactly by means of line and color the external aspect of an object yet he always adds to this purely formal reproduction something inexpressible the poet on the contrary if he only aims at formulating a new an already expressed concept or describing some visible reality will exhaust the whole treasure of the ineffable unless rhythm or accent save it by their own charms the effect of the poem will depend solely on the echo which the subject the thought in itself awakens in the soul of the hearer a contemporary will be thrilled by the poet's word for the thought which the latter expresses also forms an integral part of his own life and it will appear the more striking to him in so far as its form is more brilliant a happy selection of terms will suffice to make the expression of it acceptable and charming to him as soon however as this thought is worn out and no longer responds to the preoccupations of the soul of the period nothing of value is left to the poem except its form no doubt that is of extreme value sometimes it is so fresh and so touching that it makes us forget the insignificance of the contents a new beauty of form was already revealing itself in the literature of the fifteenth century still in the greater number of its productions the form was well worn out and the qualities of rhythm and tone are poor in such a case without novelty of thought or form naught remains but an interminable postlude on hackneyed themes a poetry without a future the painter of the same epoch and of the same mentality as the poet will have nothing to fear from time for the inexpressible which he has put into his work will always be there as fresh as on the first day let us consider the portraits of jan van eyck the somewhat pointed and pinched face of his wife the aristocratic impassable and morose head of baudin de lanoy the suffering and resigned visage of the ornolfini at berlin the enigmatic candor of lial souvenir in the national gallery in each of these physiognomies the personality was probed to the last inch it is the profoundest character drawing possible these characters were not analyzed by the artist but seen as a whole and then revealed to us by his picture he could not have described them in words even though he had been at the same time the greatest poet of his age painting even when it professes no more than to render the outward appearance of things preserves its mystery for all time to come 
hence the art and literature of the fifteenth century though born of the same inspiration and the same spirit inevitably produce on us quite different aspects apart from this fundamental difference it may be shown by the comparison of particular specimens that the literary and the pictorial expression have far more traits in common than might be supposed from our general appreciation of the one and the other let us take the brothers van eyck as being the most eminent representatives of this epoch who were the men of letters to be matched with them in order to compare their inspiration their modes of expression we have come to look for them in the same environment whence came the great painters that is to say as we demonstrated above in the environment of the court the nobility and the rich middle classes there we may assume an affinity of spirit to exist the literature which may be matched with the art of the brothers van eyck is that which the patrons of painting protected and admired at first sight the comparison seems to bring to light an essential difference whereas the subject matter of the artists is almost entirely religious the profane genre preponderates in literature still we must remember that the profane element occupied a much larger place in painting than might be supposed from what has been preserved on the other hand we run some risk in overrating a little of the preponderance of profane in literature the history of literature being naturally concerned with the tale the romance the satire the song historical writings might easily lead us to forget that pious works always occupied the first and the largest place in the libraries of the time in order to make a fair comparison between fifteenth-century painting and literature we must begin by imagining side by side with the surviving altarpieces and portraits all sorts of worldly and even frivolous paintings such as hunting or bathing scenes the above-named fazio mentions a picture by roger van der Weyden representing a young woman in a sweating-bath with two laughing young men peeping through a chink art and letters in the fifteenth century share the general and essential tendency of the spirit of the expiring middle ages that of accentuating every detail of developing every thought and every image to the end of giving concrete form to every concept of the mind erasmus tells us that he once heard a preacher in paris preach during forty days on the parable of the prodigal son so that he devoted all lent to it he described his journeys on his setting out and on his return the bill of fare of his meals at the inns the mills he passed his dicing and so forth torturing the texts of prophets and evangelists to find some that might seem to give some support to his twaddle Quote, and because of that the ignorant multitude and the fat bigwigs considered him almost a god End quote. to realize the place conceded to the minute execution of details it suffices to examine some paintings by jan van eyck let us first take the madonna of the chancellor rollin at the louvre in any other artist the laborious exactness with which the materials of the dresses are painted also the marble of the tiles and the columns the reflections of the window panes and the chancellor's breviary would give an expression of pedantry even in him the exaggerated finish of the details as in the ornaments of the capitals on which a whole series of biblical scenes is represented is hurtful to the general effect 
but it is especially in the marvellous perspective opened behind the figures of the virgin and the donor that his passion for details is given rein the dumbfounded spectator as m durand greville says in describing this picture discovers between the head of the divine child and the virgin's shoulder a town full of pointed gables and elegant belfries with a big church with numerous buttresses and a vast square cut across all its length by a staircase on which come and go and run countless little touches of the brush which are so many living figures his eye is next attracted by a curved bridge swarming with groups of people who pass and repass it follows the meanderings of a river on which tiny barks make ripples and in the midst of which on an island smaller than the nail of a child's finger rises up a lordly castle with numerous turrets surrounded by trees it traces on the left a quay planted with trees and covered with foot passengers it goes even further passing beyond the green hilltops rests for a moment on the distant line of snowy mountains to lose itself at last in the infinite space of a sky which is hardly blue where floating vapours are vaguely discerned are not unity and harmony lost in this aggregation of details as michelangelo affirmed of flemish art in general having recently seen the picture again i can no longer deny it as i formerly did on the strength of recollections many years old another work of the master which lends itself particularly to the analysis of endless detail is the annunciation in the hermitage at petrograd if the triptych of which this picture formed the right wing ever existed as a whole it must have been a superb creation van eyck here developed all the virtuosity of a master conscious of his power to overcome all difficulties of all his works it is the most hieratic and at the same time the most refined he followed the iconographic rules of the past in using as a background for the apparition of the angel the ample space of a church and not the intimacy of a bedchamber as he did in the altarpiece of the lamb where the scene is full of grace and tenderness here on the contrary the angel salutes mary by a ceremonious bow he is not represented by a spray of lilies and a narrow diadem he carries a sceptre and a rich crown and about his lips there is a stiff smile of the sculpture of aegina the splendor of the colors the glitter of the pearls the gold and the precious stones surpass those of all the other angelic figures painted by van eyck his coat is green and gold his mantle of brocade is red and gold his wings are covered with peacock feathers the book of the virgin and the cushion before her are executed with painstaking and minute care in the church there is a profusion of anecdotal details the tiles of the pavement are ornamented with the signs of the zodiac and scenes from the lives of samson and david the wall of the apse is decorated with figures of isaac and jacob in the medallions between the arches and that of christ on the celestial globe between two seraphim in a window besides other mural paintings representing the finding of the child moses and the giving of the tables of the law all explained by legible inscriptions only the decoration of the wooden ceiling though still discernible remains indistinct this time unity and harmony are not lost in the accumulation of details 
the twilight of the lofty edifice envelops all with mysterious shade so that the eye can only with difficulty distinguish the anecdotal details it is the privilege of the painter that he can give the rein to his craving for endless elaboration of details perhaps one ought to say that he can comply with the most impossible demands of an ignorant donor without sacrificing the general effect the sight of this multitude of details fatigues us no more than the sight of reality itself we only notice them if our attention has been directed to them and we soon lose sight of them so that they serve only to heighten effects of colour or perspective when the same boundless passion for details is displayed in literature the effect is quite different in the first place literature proceeds in another way it sets itself to enumerate all the ideas and all the objects which the mind of the poet associates with his subject most of the authors of the fifteenth century are singularly prolix they do not know the value of omission they fill the canvas of their composition with all the details that present themselves but without giving as does painting an accurate image of their particular features they confine themselves to enumerating them it is a strictly quantitative method whereas that of painting is qualitative another difference between the two modes of expression proceeds from the fact that the relation between the essential and the accidental is not the same in both in painting we can hardly distinguish between principal and accessory elements everything is essential the principal subject may be of no interest to the spectator or in his opinion badly rendered without the work losing its charm on that account unless the religious sentiment preponderates over ascetic appreciation the spectator before the altarpiece of the lamb will regard with as much perhaps with more profound emotion the flowery field of the principal scene the procession of adorers of the lamb the towers behind the trees in the background as the central figures of the composition in their august divinity his glance will stray from the rather uninteresting figures of god the virgin and st john the baptist to those of adam and eve to the portraits of the donors to the charming perspective of the sunlit street and the little brass kettle with the towel he will hardly ask if the mystery of the eucharist has here found its most appropriate expression so much will he be enchanted by the touching intimacy and the incredible perfection of all these details purely accessory in the eyes of those who ordered and who executed the masterpiece now in the expression of details the artist is absolutely free whereas he is tied down by rigid convention in the composition of his principal theme he may give a free rein to his imagination in all other respects he may paint the materials the vegetation the horizons the faces just as his genius prompts him the wealth of detail will no more overload his picture than flowers weigh down a dress which they adorn in the poetry of the fifteenth century the relation of the essential to the accident is reversed the poet is generally free as regards his principal subject something novel is expected from him as to accessories however he is tied down by tradition there is a conventional way of expressing each detail from which though he may be unconscious of it he can hardly deviate the flowers the delights of nature sorrows and joys all these are sung in a fashion which varies but little moreover the salutary limitation which the dimension of his picture imposes upon the artist does not exist for the poet as a rule hence to be worthy of this liberty the poet should be relatively greater than the artist even mediocre painters may delight posterity 
whereas the mediocre poet is forgotten. To make the effect of the abuse of details in a 15th-century poem felt, it would be necessary to quote it entirely. As this is impossible, we must content ourselves with considering a few fragmentary specimens. Alain Chartier, in his day, was held to be a great poet. He was compared to Petrarch, and even Clement Moreau placed him in the first rank. We may, therefore, fairly compare his work with that of the greatest painters of his time, and set the description of nature with which his Livre de Courte d'Hommes opens against the landscape of the altarpiece of the Lamb. One spring morning the poet goes out for a walk to drive away his persistent melancholy, given by the author in translation, to forget melancholy, and to cheer myself. One sweet morning I went out into the fields on the first day in which love joins hearts in the beautiful season. All this is conventional and without any special grace of rhythm or of accent. Then follows the description of a spring morning. All around birds were flying, and they sang so very sweetly that there is no heart that would not be gladdened by it, and while singing they rose up in the air, and then passed and repassed each other, vying with each other as to who should rise highest. The weather was not cloudy at all, the heavens were clad in blue, and the beautiful sun was shining brightly. The mention of these delights would not have lacked charm if the author had known where to stop, but he was not so discreet. Having gone through all the singing birds, he continues his enumeration at a jog-trot. I saw the trees blossom, and hares and rabbits run. Everything rejoiced at the spring. Love seemed to hold sway there. None could age or die, it seemed to me, so long as he was there. From the herbs arose a sweet smell, which the clear air made sweeter still. And purling through the valley, a little brook passed, moistening the lands, of which the water was not salt. There drank the little birds, after they had fed upon crickets, little flies, and butterflies. I saw their lanners, hawks, and merlins, and flies with a sting, wasps, who made pavilions of fine honey in the trees by measure. In another part was the enclosure of a charming meadow, where nature strewed flowers on the verdure, white, yellow, red, and violet. It was encircled by blossoming trees as white as if pure snow covered them. It looked like a painting, so many various colors there were. A brook balls over the pebbles, fishes swim in it, a grove spreads its twigs on the bank, forming a green curtain, and then the birds reappear, ducks, turtle-doves, pheasants, and herons, all the birds from here to Babylon, as Villon would say. The artist and the poet both striving to render the beauty of nature, both dominated by the tendency to fasten on each detail, nevertheless arrive, because of the diversity of their methods, at a very different result. Unity and simplicity in the picture, in spite of the mass of details, monotony and formlessness in the poem. But are we right in comparing poetry with painting, with respect to expressive power? Should we not rather take prose, less tied down to obligatory motifs, freer in its choice of means, to give an exact vision of reality? One of the fundamental traits of the mind of the declining Middle Ages is the predominance of the sense of sight, a predominance which is closely connected with the atrophy of thought. Thought takes the form of visual images. Really to impress the mind, a concept has to first take a visible shape. 
the insipidity of allegory could be borne because the satisfaction of the mind lay in the vision this constant need of expressing the visible was far better fulfilled by pictorial than by literary means and again better by prose than by poetry because it conforms more easily to the visualizing turn of the mind the prose of the fifteenth century in general is superior to its poetry because prose like painting could attain a high degree of direct and powerful realism which was denied to poetry by its stage of development and by its proper nature there is one author especially who by the eminent clearness of his vision of external things reminds us of van eyck namely georges castellan he was a fleming from the alost district though he calls himself a loyal frenchman a frenchman by birth it is highly probable that flemish was his mother tongue la marche calls him a born fleming though writing in the french language he himself likes to lay stress on his rusticity he speaks of his coarse speech he calls himself quote, a flemish man a man of the cattle-breeding marshes rude ignorant stammering of tongue greasy of mouth and of palate and quite bemired with other defects proper to the nature of the land his flemish birth explains the heaviness of his flowery speech his pompous and turgid his pompous and turgid grandiloquence in short his truly burgundian style which makes him almost unbearable to the french reader it is a formal style of somewhat elephantine character but it is also to his flemish cast of mind that chastelon owes his lucid and penetrating vision and the richness of his colouring there are undeniable affinities between chastelon and jan van eyck and that is saying a good deal let us recall the group of singing angels of the altarpiece of the lamb those heavy dresses of red and gold brocade loaded with precious stones those too expressive grimaces the somewhat puerile decoration of the lectern all this in painting is the equivalent of the showy burgundian prose it is a rhetorician's style transferred to painting now whereas this rhetorical element occupies but a small place in painting it is the principal thing in chastelan's prose where the clear observation and the vivid realism are too often drowned in the flood of flowery phrases and stilted terms only when chastelan describes an event which grips his visualizing mind he evinces an imaginative strength which makes him very interesting he has no more ideas than his contemporaries and colleagues his arsenal like theirs is stocked with nothing but moral pious and chivalrous commonplaces his speculations never go below the surface but his powers of observation are remarkably keen and his descriptions very lively the portrait he drew of duke philip has all the vigour of a van eyck he delights in the description of scenes of action and passion displaying a degree of true and simple realism which would have made this chronicler an excellent novelist take for instance his narrative of a quarrel between the duke and his son charles which took place in fourteen fifty seven his visual perception is nowhere so vivid as here all the outward circumstances of the event are rendered with perfect clearness a few rather long quotations are indispensable the difference arose in connection with a vacancy in the household of the young count of charolais the old duke wanted contrary to his promise to give the place to a member of the family of croy then in high favour charles who did not share his father's feelings for that family had destined it for one of his friends 
in translation by the author quote, the duke then on monday which was st anthony's day after mass being very desirous that his house should remain peaceful and without dissensions between his servants and that his son too should do his will and pleasure after he had already said a great part of his hours and the chapel was empty of people called his son to come to him and said to him gently charles the quarrel which is going on between the lords of sempi and of emers about the place of the chamberlain i wish that you would put a stop to it and that the lord of sempi obtains the vacancy then said the count monsignor you once gave me your orders in which the lord of sempi is not mentioned and monsignor if you please i pray you that i may keep to them Des, this said the duke then do not trouble yourself about orders it belongs to me to augment and to diminish i wish that the lord of sempi be placed there ha hun this said the count for he always swore like that monsignor i beg you forgive me for i could not do it i abide by what you have ordered me this was done by my lord of croy who played me this trick i can see that how this said the duke will you disobey me will you not do what i wish monsignor i shall gladly obey you but i shall not do this and the duke at these words choking with anger replied ha boy will you disobey my will go out of my sight and the blood with these words rushing to his heart he turned pale and then all at once flushed and there came such a horrible expression on his face as i heard from the clerk of the chapel who alone was with him that it was hideous to look at him the duchess who was present at this dispute was so much frightened by her husband's look that she tried to lead her son out of the oratory and pushed him before her to get out of range of his father's wrath but they had to turn several corners before coming to the door of which the clerk had the key caron open the door for us says the duchess but the clerk falls at her feet praying her to persuade her son to ask pardon before leaving the chapel in answer to his mother's urgent request charles answers in a loud voice quote, faith madam monsignor has forbidden me to come into his sight and is indignant at me so that after this prohibition i shall not return to him so soon but under god's care i shall go away i do not know where then is heard the voice of the duke who has remained in his seat paralyzed with fury and the duchess in an agony of fear says to the clerk my friend open the door quickly quickly we must be gone or we are lost on returning to his apartments the old duke beside himself with anger fell into a fit of mental aberration about nightfall he left brussels alone on horseback insufficiently dressed and without warning any one the days were short at that time and it was already evening when that prince here mounted his horse and asked nothing but to be alone out in the fields it so happened that on that day after a long and sharp frost it had begun to thaw and because of a lasting thick fog which had been about all day in the evening a fine but very penetrating rain began to fall which soaked the fields and broke the ice as did the wind which joined in both this passage and the preceding one are assuredly not lacking in simple and natural force in the description which follows the nocturnal ride of the duke as he wanders through the fields and woods chastelaine has mixed his pompous rhetoric with this spontaneous naturalism which produces a very bizarre effect starving and tired the old duke having lost his way 
vainly calls for help. He narrowly escapes falling into a river, which he takes for a road. He is wounded by falling with his horse. He listens in vain for the crowing of a cock or the barking of a dog, which might have indicated some habitation to him. At last he perceives a glimmer and tries to get to it, loses sight of it, finds it again, and reaches it at last. Quote, but the more he approached it, the more it seemed a hideous and frightful thing, for fire came out of a mound in more than a thousand places with thick smoke, and at that hour anybody would think that it was the purgatory of some soul or some other illusion of the devil. Upon this he stops, but suddenly remembers that charcoal burners are in the habit of lighting such kilns in the depths of the woods. However, he does not find a house anywhere near and begins roaming about once more. At last the barking of a dog directs him to the hovel of a poor man, where he finds rest and food. End of section 25